Boom, what's up everyone? Welcome to Simulation. I'm your host, Alan Sakyan. Very excited to be talking about building a better society. We have Matt Pruitt joining us on the show. Hello. Hello. Thanks so much for coming on, Matt. Thank you for having me. Very excited for this episode. For those that don't know Matt's background, Matt Pruitt is president at Radical Exchange Foundation, which uses mechanism design to improve basic institutions. Find the links in the bio below to radicalexchange.org, as well as the Twitter for Rad Exchange and Matt's Twitter as well. All right, let's start things off with one of our favorite questions to us, ask our guests. What are your thoughts on the direction of our world? Um, that's like a big question. My, uh, I think that I'm basically agnostic. So some, I, I often resist the uh, temptation to say that I'm optimistic or pessimistic because the reality is uh, I don't know. I'm cautiously optimistic. I wanna do what I, everything I can to make sure the future looks great. Um, yeah. And I think we, you know, anything can happen. And uh, um, it's our job to make sure that we make it as good as we can. And what would you say are some of the key things that we need to embody moving forward to make it as optimistic, positive as we can? Um, I think we need to be very thoughtful. Um, I think we need to try to foresee the consequences of our actions uh, as scrupulously as we can uh, and kind of accept that, that responsibility. Um, I think we need to you know, look beyond our own our own interests, but also be uh, realistic about the fact that our, our own, in, you know, self-interest motivates people, um, and uh, you know, do our best. That's good. Yeah, that Nash equilibrium between one's own self-interest and the collective interest, and then also like the seven-generation rule of indigenous people, like thinking seven generations out of our actions. Yeah, yeah, that's a great idea. Yeah, there should be more of that. <laughs> I love it. I love it. All right, let's break down um, the journey. So born in Oakland and then you went to uh, Brown and then the University of Michigan for law school. But teach us about who you were as a kid and how you even got interested in some of these concepts that we're talking about today. Uh, who I was as a kid. Um, uh, I, I think I was a kind of a thoughtful, uh, occasionally, you know, in, you know introverted uh, kid. Um, uh, I've always had a really wide range of interests. Um, uh, I think that if you'd talked to me in, in, uh, in middle school or high school, I would have said, I want to be a writer or a philosopher or something like that. Um, and, uh, you know, got a little sidetracked along the way, but ultimately that's where, that's where like my that's where the heat is with me. I mean, that's, that's what I'm interested in. Um, uh, you know, but I, I mean, my background is like fairly uh, middle-class suburban, um, you know, nothing, nothing out of the ordinary, uh, but I, I feel, you know, fortunate to have had a, uh, you know, gotten a great education and had a, yeah. you know, parents who, who helped bring me along well, so. Um, you know, a lot of advantages. Yeah, took the leap out to Brown. Yep. Yep. And then the law school at background as well, learning that. How did that end up coming up that you ended up getting interested in law, pursuing that? I, I was definitely the, uh, I was definitely the classic, like, um, you know, people say that not knowing what you want to do is the wrong reason to go to law school. I was exactly that. Um, <laughs> you know, the, I, I knew that I was, I, I knew that I could write. I knew that I could make arguments for things, mm -hmm. um, and I knew that I enjoyed doing that. But I was actually never truly attracted to the role of being a lawyer. Like I never, I didn't really want that career. I just knew that that's kind of where my um, where my skill set was, um, and uh, and. And I think that combined with the fact that lawyers get to engage these basic questions of like justice and, and you know, how to structure society yeah. was enough to like pull me into it. Um, you know, but then once I, once I got into law school, I had to find my way, uh, I've had to find my way through like the career track of being a lawyer back to things that interested me more fully, if that makes sense. Yeah, totally. It's good that you got that 
background training with justice and uh, figuring out how to structure society optimally because that totally leads us yeah into rad what a radical exchange is doing and what you're passionate about now right yeah but we have to talk about this when you were practicing law in new york you worked for the federal judge in new york what is that like is that like these um these circuit courts that are right below the supreme so court I, I worked for a district court judge a district which court. is below the circuit court which is below the circuit court got it okay and but what you know district courts are are trial courts you know so they um you actually your feet are closer to the ground and you actually kind of see the uh gears of justice working more intimately totally. like if you yeah. just if you work at a circuit court or at the supreme court all you get are these like highly abstract edge cases. Mm. You know, you don't see, um, you know, you don't see uh, like the sorts of everyday criminal and civil disputes that arise. So, what are the most like, yeah, common criminal and civil disputes that arise? Uh, well, it's, it depends on um, like what court. You know, so in New York, you get a lot of financial. Um, uh, you know, finance industry type stuff, and uh, on particularly on the civil side, um, and on I guess on the criminal side too. I mean, you see like money laundering and those kinds of cases. But then you also get, um, you know, just like drug cases and, um, uh, um, you know, uh, violent crime and and the. Uh, the kinds of, of, of criminal cases that the judges see everywhere. Yeah, and then what was that like for you? Like, what were you feeling when you were doing this? Uh, I actually felt, uh, so I, I felt it was a, um, a real privilege to be in a position to, um, uh, to, to, to try to help a judge get to the best outcome you know yeah. to get to the most just outcome like being a clerking for a judge is one of those um, uh, kind of behind the scenes positions of power that um, not everybody's you know totally aware of what clerks are doing but they they have um, they're in a position of great influence and going through that can kind of you know put some hair on your chin so to speak like you have to you have to um, um, you know, be willing to think about real things happening to real, real people, people in, yeah. in a really serious way. So, yeah, uh, I, it was, uh, and their families. And, yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, and it's hard. It's hard. So hard. Yeah. 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 Just you know, rushing to imprison people is can be it's really really tough thing and it impacts people their families yeah right but also holding yeah justice for acts of violence or murder or rape or yeah tra drug trafficking uh money laundering there's all different types of ways to have to uphold a, a structured society that yeah yeah right hard yeah and i mean we you know it's not a secret that uh the united states has a fairly dysfunctional criminal justice system yeah uh, and um, when you're working for a court, in a way, you're participating in it, but then you're also in a position to try to mitigate the problems with it. Yeah. Um, and I certainly tried to do that. Yeah. Yeah. Updating the, the society's code to have more just uh, uh, for criminal justice, I think that's massive. Um, and I think we're slowly moving in that direction. I think uh, even back to the ideas of the Founding Fathers and all of the amendments that we've had to the Constitution that we um, weren't expecting exponential technology in these complex geopolitical landscapes and having over 600,000 people be represented by a single person in Congress, right? So these are all things that need to be yeah. updated. Right. I mean, yeah. The scale of our society is one of the biggest things that just like... There, there was no way to foresee that. 
I mean, there was no way, or even if you could have foreseen it, how could you plan for it? It's, it just changes the dynamics of everything. So to not be like too slow uh, and too conservative, but to not be too liberal either, but to be kind of like just right with the amount of, of changes that need to be made to society's code that make it easy to deal, easier to deal with the scale that we're um, going through. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Like you want to yeah. like, you want institutions need to, need to evolve, but then they, they also need to maintain a certain continuity with the past. Because if, yeah, if yeah. you know, it, and that continuity kind of happens, in my opinion, and on the layer of principles. Yes, yes. So like there are certain yes. there are certain principles that have been around a really long really time. Really long time. Yeah. They're they're quite valuable that yeah. we don't want to lose. Yeah, free speech. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but we need to continue to reinterpret those principles in light of uh, varying, you know, new set of facts. Censorship on world. tech platforms, all this type of stuff. Yeah. 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 <sighs> yeah. I like that, the first principles perspective. Yeah. Let's, let's do some of the stuff you were um, dealing with in antitrust and consumer class action. What is that? So, um, so before I clerked, I worked um, for a large firm on the defense side as just a civil litigator, um, which was a great experience. I love everybody I worked with and I had to, you know, learned a ton. Um, but I, um, I think actually, and this is, you know, we can develop this as we talk about um, my work on the plaintiff side, but um, I, didn't, I didn't actually like the role of, of being an advocate that much. Um, and here's why, because I learned through being a litigator that what I liked about arguing, what I liked about writing and constructing arguments was um, the aspect of that that I really enjoyed most was trying to figure out what I thought was was true, and when you're in the position of an advocate, that's not exactly what you're doing. You know, you're 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 you're, you're trying to figure out. You're, you're working as hard as you can to try to figure out the best possible argument for your client, which is, you know, a valuable thing to do, and somebody's got to do it. But it's not honestly what I most enjoyed about, uh, you know lawyering. Um, and so when I was on the defense side, I often felt like, you know, um, you know, I didn't always feel like I, you know, in, I didn't always feel I was on the right side is one way of putting it, right? Ooh, that's and, hard. And your ethos the, wasn't, your ethos wasn't aligning necessarily with who, how you were needing to represent right. the best case for the person you were representing. Right. Yeah, yeah. And, and, but this can get, this can get super complicated because, uh, I think lawyers have, are, I could, we could just talk about lawyering this whole time, honestly, because yeah, so, yeah. The, the thing is like, even when you believe in, the, in your client, even when you believe your client is right, sometimes you have to make arguments that you may not think are right in order to zealously represent your client yeah, yeah. who is overall right, right? And this can be hard. Damn. Right? Yeah. Um, so then you, you're, you're, you're figuring out how to structure your own, um, your own way of, of, of being persuasive that, <laughs> that is in a way that you, that may be, um, that doesn't follow maybe some of your morals, uh, or ethics, but that overall is representing the person that you think should be winning. And so that's, yeah. yeah right. Yeah. So, you know, so you have like, um, you know, there are different ways. I think people deal with this in different ways. Um, some people, I think some people really feel the need to be kind of, uh, you know, body, mind, and spirit aligned with their client, right? Yeah, and, yeah. and so, and, and there are different ways of doing that. One way is to like, just pick your clients, right? Only represent clients that you fully 1000% believe in. Yeah. Which is actually impossible if you think about it. And the, uh, and the other, Another way of doing it is to is to just sort of um, embody the role of the advocate, yeah, right? Yeah. Embody the role of the lawyer, and in order to do that, you have to like fully believe in the system. You have to believe that that by um, by filling the the advocate's role to the best of your abilities, um, you are contributing to a system that overall works out for the best, um, which is also sometimes. Yeah. Sometimes difficult. It's it may not stand up to scrutiny. So, 
Um, so, this, I mean, I struggled with this. I think a lot of lawyers struggle with it. People find their own ways of, of uh, threading that needle. And, um, uh, but I guess long story short is that after some time on the defense side, I was interested in representing the other side. I was in, interested in representing, um, uh, um, you know, smaller parties, like, you know, not big corporations and stuff. And, um, uh, and I did that for, for a few, you know, a couple of years, I guess, as a um, antitrust um, and consumer class action litigator. Um, and um, what is that? Um, well, uh, you know, class actions are the, I mean, the gist of class actions are, you know, that you uh, represent you represent a class, so a, a group of people who've all been harmed in a similar way, right? And, the, and this is like a, a mechanism that's a little bit peculiar to the American legal system that allows people to like group their claims in this way. Mm. And the you know the basic idea is that it um, is it creates efficiencies because if you've got yeah, yeah. Uh, lots of people harmed in essentially the same way. It's more efficient for them to be able to group their claims. Like if a company was to unjustly let go like 100 or 500 people or something like that. Yeah, exactly. Although that would be, so that's a, a good example because that would be like a hard class to bring actually because you know the, the company would be able to say, oh, but all these 500 people are in slightly different situations. Right, mm -hmm. so you, we can't mm -hmm. litigate group this them. as a class. Sure, we can't, sure. this isn't one question, this mm -hmm. is 500 questions. So the role, of a, the, the mm. job of a class action lawyer is to is to make the argument that this isn't five hundred questions, this isn't a million questions, this is one question. This is a million people who all basically suffered the same kind of harm, which was right? potentially that the company yeah. had something happened to its finances or whatever that had needed to release the five hundred people. Right. Yeah. So that would be you know that would be like an employment situation, but then an antitrust situation. It would be you know that there was a like let's say that there was an antitrust conspiracy which caused uh, prices to go up and thousands of people paid, uh, paid you know, prices that are too high because they all, you know, they all suffered from you know, the same harm, the, the same antitrust uh, violation. So, right. an, so antitrust is mostly visible in kind of the, kind of the dynamics that occur between, uh, in many ways, like oligopolies yeah, or monopolies. I mean, like the you know the classic in cases you know instances of antitrust law have to do with with monopolies. Um, and are they trying to like do things like build moats or bridges around their projects and fortunes, so that way it's harder for other people to come in, and so then that's maybe they're trying to sue the company for doing things that make it harder for like smaller, medium-sized companies to try and come into marketplaces yeah you know just suppressing competition maybe something like an like a Amazon web services or um, or even just the Amazon marketplace themselves just making it more and more their algorithms showing up their products more and more often than the smaller medium-sized businesses that are trying to market yeah I mean the, it, this is the right ballpark like this is the kind of thing that ant like antitrust litigation or you know antitrust litigators worry about, but the truth is that, you know, it's really hard to bring like a monopolization case now because, you know, yeah. the, it's, it's hard to show that consumers are being harmed by Amazon. You know, there's, you know, it's, it's always easy to sort of make the argument that like no matter how big Amazon is, you know, somebody else can come along and create an e-commerce site. Like, Amazon isn't preventing anybody from doing that. So it's hard and, and, and for various kind of more technical reasons like the the doctrine has evolved over the years and it's just become quite hard to, you know, to convince a court that there's a, a monopoly problem. So the, the kinds of, of antitrust cases that, um, that tend to be successful in court these days have, um, tend to be in the area of like price fixing, like antitrust conspiracies. So, you know, mm. if you've got, if you've got uh, you know, five or six players in the market and they're like agreeing yeah. not to compete on prices, right? Yeah, yeah. So those are the kinds of, those are the kinds of cases that 
plaintiff Damn. side antitrust lawyers can actually win because you know there might be like emails saying sure, okay sure. we agree not we to agree lower not our to, prices yeah. you know so that those are like the sort of winnable antitrust cases these days from a plaintiff's perspective but obviously there's um, there the 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 problems out there in the marketplace that make competition imperfect are a lot broader than that yeah and um, that's actually like one of the th one of the things that is a little frustrating a little disillusioning about um, practicing antitrust law from a plaintiff's point of view because it's like a lot of the a lot of the things that you're really worried about like there isn't there isn't actually a winnable legal case there you know and sometimes the things that you might that you know you're honestly a little less worried about are the winnable cases which is like a, another kind of frustrating misalignment does that make sense yeah yeah we could do a whole episode plus on just the differences in antitrust and also on um, how to best update the code of our judicial systems in general yeah um, yeah so we could I love I love where where the conversation has taken us in the first bit let's let's move Sure. Okay, let's do, um, so then you started working in um, blockchain programming mechanism design. That's when you also started working with Glenn on Radical Exchange. Yeah. And then you ended up moving back to the Bay. We have a couple assets that we'll be showing on these separate little um, uh, three sort of points that we're going to be hitting on. Yeah, what was that time like um, getting involved with Radical Exchange, learning about mechanism design? So um, I, I've been like a hobbyist programmer for many years, and uh, I got really interested in blockchain a few years ago, just thinking about, basically thinking about how to use it to solve various kinds of collective action problems. Yeah. And, um, uh, you know, towards the, towards the end of my time as a litigator, I found myself, I found myself thinking about that a lot, um, and I eventually decided to take a bit of a leap of faith and, and you know, try to switch fields and, and work on that problem. Um, and uh, so through that, I started kind of programming and trying to build um, tools, basically like, you know, Ethereum-based um, smart contract tools that could allow um, um, interesting forms of collaboration and collective act you know collective action problem solving and um, through that work got interested in this problem of mechanism design right and, and Glenn Weil is you know I work with a radical exchange has done really amazing work in that in that area so I, I found his work started reading about it um, got in touch with Glenn and started um, uh, you know put together this little Group Radical Exchange Foundation, and you know, we put on a conference uh, in Detroit in yeah. March. Um, uh, so yeah, does that? Answer yeah, that? that's good. Yeah, yeah. And the mechanisms themselves on um, being able to leverage things like blockchain for collective action, I think, is a very fascinating field, and will be. Um, I think that edge is being pushed right now. Collective action leveraging decentralized ledgers, I think is really interesting. Um, and then, okay, let's start unpacking the different um, fields that are being pushed by Radical Exchange trying to uh, build a better society. Yeah. One of them is voting, and you're teaching me about the concept of quadratic voting. I thought this was yeah. really interesting. Okay, so this is, a, um, this is a kind of a illustration of how quadratic voting works, but m maybe I should start by just explaining it in words, yes. so the the um, the basic idea in quadratic voting is that um, uh, instead of instead of one person getting one vote on every issue, the way like normal voting works, every person gets a budget of of you call them like voice credits, okay? Voice credits, yeah, okay. or, or you, voting, voting credits, credits, whatever you want to call okay. them, right? You got you know, yeah. Chips. Chips. And yeah, you, and tokens. You, yeah. And you can put your voice credits, you can allocate your voice credits across different voting issues however you want. I can put all of them in one or I could put them little bits into a bunch of different ones. Exactly. So you, you, could, you could spread them out, in which case it's just exactly the same as everybody getting one vote on each issue. Mm -hmm. Or you could concentrate them all 
on the issue on one issue that you care about to the exclusion of all other issues. And here's the right? catch if you do that. So the, the catch is that if you if you concentrate your credits on one issue, then you get l less voice overall. Yeah. Okay. And it's and it's not just that you don't get to vote on the other issues because you concentrated all your voting credits on one issue. It's actually that you get um, uh, you get less voice. Period. Because so the it, so here's how it works. Like if you if if like let's say I wanted to vote twice on one issue that I let's so let's say you I've have got, nine total credits, right? Or, well, yeah. This is ten. Okay. This is ten. Oh, this so, is ten credits. So ima it. so yeah. imagine this way. Imagine there's a ballot with ten issues on it. Okay. And I've got 10 voice credits. Yeah. So if there's one issue that I would like to vote twice on, I have to spend four voting credits on that. Yeah. Okay. And okay. the rule is that the, the number of voting credits you have to spend is the square of the number of times you want to vote on it. Yeah, yeah. So if I want to vote twice on an issue, I have to spend four, four. of my 10 on that. Yeah. If I want to vote three times, then I have to spend nine. nine. Right. So. Uh, 4, 16, 525. Exactly. Right. Ooh, that goes fast. That gets yeah. you up there fast. If you want to vote 10 times, that's 100 right. credits. Yeah. yeah. And, but, and the, but the reason this is such an interesting idea is that it, um, it, it, it allows you to concentrate your votes on the issues that you care most about, but it, but it uh, forces you to pay a price for doing that. Yeah. So it's basically like you can think of it as putting a cost on um, on like zealotry on or zealotry. fanaticism, and right? Fanaticism. Like you know, if, if I care about one issue so much that I would that I want to um, you know overwhelm the voices of other issues, of yeah. o overwhelm yeah. the voices of other voters. Like yeah. if I want to like cause a basically a counter-majoritarian outcome through yeah. my voting, yeah. I have to pay a cost for that. But what if right. I have the hundred million dollars and I'm trying to put it on like marketing for that um, for people to get engaged on that vote? Then how would that turn um, into you so, know, the square of that? Yeah. Well, I mean that's like something happening outside the system, right? I mean if you're just if you're using money to advertise for one cause or another, you you know that's that's outside of the ballot, right? I mean, that's outside of the ballot, even in the voting system that we have now, right? Um, and it, and it would, it's likewise outside the ballot okay. here. You know, this is just kind of, this is like, a, this is a better way of doing a ballot, but it doesn't solve the problem of, of people, you know, circumventing a ballot by, for example, putting a billion dollars in marketing towards one, okay. you know? Now, okay. but- uh, Can't make them pay square for the marketing, yeah. No, right, yeah, of course, yeah. yeah. But, 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 uh, but it raises a, a super interesting philosophical point, which is that if you think about it, the power that you have in the political system to vote, you know, and the power that you have in the economic system to, you know, put your money towards advertising for something, those are, in a way, those are fungible with one another, right? Those are two, those are basically like two forms of political voice that are operating different systems according to a different set of rules but they they're fungible with one another they cross that boundary so it, it, I mean it creates interesting issues obviously which like we're dealing with in our politics now and then where is this being implemented already and how's it going so um, we uh, we're I mean one very exciting thing that that happened is that the uh, the majority caucus in the Colorado State Legislature used quadratic voting to prioritize their spending bills. Whoa. So for example, you know, so I, I, I'm probably getting the numbers slightly wrong, but I think it was like they had a $40 million budget and, and uh, a set of spending bills that would have allocated $160 million. So they had to like prioritize this. They had to decide, you know, which ones are the most important, yeah. which ones are we gonna put out there? And um, they, they used a quadratic vote cool. to decide among themselves, like, you know, which ones are the most important. And um, that's interesting. Yeah. And what it did is it, it gave them it, it actually, I mean, another great thing about quadratic voting, if you compare it to like regular voting, is that it, it gives you more data because it, do, it doesn't just tell you, um, you know, uh, directionally, like where vote, where each yeah. voter is directionally. It shows you how zealous they are. Exactly. It, should get, it shows you strength of preference. Yeah. So, you know, you, you know, you want to, you know, back to what I was saying before, like, 
you want to impose a cost on on zealotry mm. basically because you you know it's not in principle it's kind of a harm for you know one person to try to outweigh the voices of other people however in some cases you actually want that you actually want to allow that to happen in some cases because for example um, sometimes a majority oppresses a minority mm -hmm. this is like one of the classic problems of of democracy yeah and what what quadratic voting does is it allows a little bit of a sort of a safety valve for um, minorities to affect counter-majoritarian outcomes when they care very strongly. About a specific uh, issue, they can all go really heavy on that issue. Right. But then if the majority also goes really heavy on that issue, they'll still, in that sense, lose. Right. But, for, but at the margin, it's, it's going to be a good thing when you know a minority like resists you know uh, at, at the margin that safety valve is going to avoid bad outcomes and here's why because many mm. cases of uh, many cases of like majority oppression of the minority have the feature that the majority cares more weakly than the minority about that particular issue okay right so if you've got like if you've got 60% of a population you know who just you know cares very weakly about a particular issue, but that particular issue causes immense harm for the 40%, Yeah. right? You want that to, you want the 40% to win. Yeah, yeah. And quadratic voting gives you like an that. avenue for that to happen. Yeah, yeah. Interesting. Yeah, yeah, I wonder if this is uh, like, to be able to calibrate um, for uh, zealousness, uh, calculate for that is something that's going to become really popular in the next updates that we have in our social fabric. Quadratic voting. It's an interesting concept, yeah. I mean, I think you want, uh, you, want their, you want people to be able to express how strongly they feel. I mean, that's, that's a really important um, piece of the information that we should be able to input into like a, a democratic process or a collective decision-making process. It's really, it's important for us to be able to represent our strength of preference. You're like a weight amount of value to like from a, maybe from a zero to 10 on how much you care about this specific issue. Yeah. That's what this, yeah. Right. But there's gotta be a cost a for, cost for expressing a stronger preference because otherwise everybody will just dial the, dial their preference up to 10, to 10 on, on everything. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, versus if you do dial it up to 10, you also have to use more of your vote credits on that yeah, issue. Right. Yeah, yeah. Which means that you have a weaker voice on other on issues. other issues, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And then everyone's just given, uh, allocated the same amount of, of credits. And that, that yeah. yeah, yeah. Exactly, which means, you know. And you can't buy more at the little token booth. No, no. And I mean, and that, that's. You can buy more with marketing important. dollars, which is what we were talking uh, about. Right. You can buy more, yeah. Right, yeah, but that's like, you know, that's a. We're not solving every problem at every, once. At once, yeah, yeah, yeah. But the, um, you know, the fact that everybody gets the same initial allocation of credits is like crucial, obviously. Yeah. Because yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah. Okay, let's let's do um, collective financing of public goods. Okay, and this is also another quadratic finance. Yeah. Okay, designing a matching fund. Okay. So this was this idea was um, it has roots in older ideas, but it it's most um, recent. You know, I mean, it's it's articulation in its current form uh, happened in a paper um, that Glenn uh, Weil wrote with um, Vitalik Buterin, mm -hmm. the uh, founder of Ethereum, and uh, Zoe Hitzig, who's like an amazing scholar from uh, economist from Harvard, uh, and. Uh, the idea of quadratic finance, quadratic finance kind of builds on some of the ideas in quadratic voting. And um, I guess before I explain what that is illustrating, mm -hmm. I'll again um, articulate it in words. Yes. So the way, that, the way that quadratic finance, you can think of quadratic finance as a better design for matching funds, like for example, philanthropic matching funds. So the way that if you think about uh, the way that a matching fund normally works, it's like I donate uh, 
$2 to the cause and then the matcher matches it with $2. You donate $1 to the cause, matcher matches it with $1, right? Mm -hmm. So it's actually kind of, it's sort of like, you know, how did we come up with that, right? It's sort of an unsystematic uh, system. This is, a, this is a, a, a way of designing that matching mechanism in a way that is much better. The way that it works is um, you take the amount that I donate to the, to the cause the amount that you donate, the amount that everybody else donates. You take the, you take the, amount, the amounts that each of us donate, take the square root of each of those amounts, sum them all up, and then square that sum. And which might sound a little, uh, a little hard to process, a little obscure, but it's actually pretty mathematically simple. There's not too many things going on here. Yep. And, the, um, and it has, really, really interesting features. The, 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 most, um, the most obvious upshot of this is that it means that more matching funds are provided to uh, projects or proposals that have a broader base of support. Mm -hmm. Okay, and, and, yep. and this... Um, you gave, we gave this example of that if someone is, one person's donating uh, nine percent of of, uh, of of total amount of money to to something versus if a hundred people are donating uh, nine percent of a total amount to something, then the one that has a hundred people donating nine percent will get more matching. Exactly, it'll get way more matching. Way more matching, right? Yeah. So, um, so you just want to again, you want to kind of give more to the one to ones. To issues that have more people backing them, you want to give more matched donations too. Exactly. Versus ones that just have a single really high paying person. Exactly. So if you've got only just like, one, if you have one person backing an, uh, a, an initiative, then there's no matching funds at all, right? Whereas if there's a very broad group of people who are all donating small amounts, you have a large matching. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So this, I mean, this, what this does is it illustrates the amount of matching. Okay. So let's say there's, um, let's say there are, so these are different voters, or not voters, but you know, don donors. This them, was what right? you just described, X. X is what you just described, and there's only one individual contribution, there's no matching. Yeah, exactly. So X, so X, Y, and Z are like proposals that people are giving money to, you know, that have, you know, a matching guarantee mm -hmm. behind them. Mm -hmm. The, the, the five little things at the top are uh, people. So the, the person on the left donates a big, that big block to X and a little bit to Y. A little bit to Y, yeah. Right. Okay. Uh, the second person here donates like a medium-sized amount to Y. Yep. Um, and so on. And so the proposal X, you know, if you run it through that formula, it, you know, you can see it gets no matching. Yeah. Whereas Y, you know, the, you, you take the, you know, you take the amounts that, um, you know, it got a little bit from each person. Yeah. You stack them up that way and the, uh, the um, I'm sorry, I've got my hand in front of the thing here, but the, the part with the squiggle represents yeah, yeah, right the here. amount You're good. of matching. Yeah, you can show that, yeah, yeah. the squiggly so, part, yeah. So the, you know, the, the area of that squiggly part of the square represents the amount of matching funds that that proposal got. Yeah. Um, and you can see that it's, a greater amount because it has this broader base of support, which just increases the size of that square, where you know the 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 vacant area is the matching amount. Yeah, yeah. And then in Z, there were two people that supported Z with larger contributions. Right. And so you know it has a it's it's in between the two. It has an intermediate amount of matching relative to the uh, yeah. contributions that went in in the yeah. first place. Whereas Y has like a lot more matching that came in because there were five people, but there were a less individual contribution total amount of like money in this case. Exactly. Interesting. And then can you give us a, an idea of locations where quadratic finance is already being used? Uh, yeah. So we. Um, uh, Gitcoin, for example, used a um, used like a, a slightly modified version of quadratic finance to um, run a, a, a fundraising initiative for various projects that you know um, you know used the Gitcoin platform to raise money. Mm. Uh, there's another uh, blockchain-based uh, philanthropy um, 
platform called WeTrust um, that successfully ran a similar experiment. Um, and uh, so there are people out there, you know, doing this, experimenting with this, but we have in mind much broader kinds of applications for this kind of thing. Like, for example, yeah, let's hear. the um, one, I think one really beautiful area where um, quadratic finance could be used would be like providing public funds to journalism or something mm, like mm. that. Like, and journalism is a great example because it's like, it's like a public good. You know, everybody, if you've got good journalism in a country or in the world or whatever, everything benefits, anything, everything benefits from that. It makes the political system works better. It makes the economy work better. It just, it has these like, you know, non-excludable benefits that flow to the entire society. And, um, uh, you know, so therefore there should be some kind of like public funding for it. The problem is, the problem with public funding is that, uh, you know, who gets to make the decision about where the public funds go, right? So if you've got like a government funding journalism, that can be, uh, that can be good, you know? If you've got a government that funds, you know, sound journalistic institutions like maybe the BBC or something, but then it can also be really bad if you've got a government, uh, you know, pouring immense resources into like the propagandistic state media. And so it creates this, you know, wh whenever you've got public funds going towards journalism, it creates this question about, you know, how, how do we like, how is that democratically accountable? How do we make sure that the government is funding, um, uh, you know, the right kind of, of, of journalism? If you imagine um, using something like quadratic finance, you could, you, could, you could imagine a government providing the matching funds here, mm. which, would, which would allow them to like, you know, pour, you know, uh, pump money into, um, into journalism, fund journalism, but to do so in a, in a responsible way, in a way that's likely to serve the interests of many, as opposed to like the interests of, of, of you know, one trillionaire who, you know, has yeah, a particular yeah. idea about which newspaper is the best. Yes, right? versus 100,000 people that all want to uplift an independent newspaper yeah. getting a lot of matching funding from a government. Yeah, exactly. And it's like, you know, the government's not even picking the winner. I mean, the government just has funds that it, out, that it uses for yeah. uh, matching. Period. Yeah, and, and then, then it just gets distributed based on the amount of, 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 in, of, of individuals that are contributing towards specific outlets, journalistic outlets. Yeah. Exactly. By, by amount of people, not just by amount of money. Exactly. One person, yeah. yeah. And it also encourages broad-based participation. It, you know, in the, like, you know, the government would go out to everybody and say, okay, we've got these matching funds, you know, now. So, you know, don't. Now get involved. Now get involved. Put yeah. some money towards the, uh, the journalistic outlets that you, yeah. um, that, you know, you think are the most important. And even if I don't have much money, I've still got a great incentive to participate in that if the government's using quadratic financing, because yeah. my small contribution is gonna get a much bigger match, match. Yeah. than a billionaire. This also seems to help within the politician side of things as well, where a politician can get a billion dollars of financing from a single individual versus if they get a bunch of little $20 donations, they can get a massive match, and then that politician has a greater chance of representing the greater amount of people than just one person with an agenda. Yeah. Okay, cool, yeah. Okay, and then, okay, now last uh, on the three, we have property, common ownership, self-assessed taxation, aka cost. Okay. Yeah, so actually, I think there's one other slide that has like a picture of a- Oh yeah, let's do the, yeah, let's do the guy first. Yeah, yeah, we'll do this first. Who's Henry George again? So H Henry George is a, um, he was a 19th century uh, American journalist and economist. He was kind of like a popular writer who uh, had sort of a uh, bizarre, unconventional career. But um, after working for journalism many years, he wrote this book. Um, he wrote a book in 1879 called uh, Progress and Poverty, which, uh, which was like immensely popular. Uh, you know, a, a un, according to unconfirmed sources, it was the best-selling book in the English language after the Bible, 
Whoa. for uh, 30 years after being published. Progress in Poverty? Progress in Poverty. So it's kind of like, wow. he's kind of this like surprisingly forgotten 19th century American popular writer. Okay. Um, but he was also, um, he, he gained the respect of the entire economic establishment through his ideas about um, uh, basically like the injustice of, of uh, private property and land. So he has these, he has these okay. very interesting ideas. And what does the unbounded savanna mean? So, okay, so he's got, in, in his book, um, Progress and Poverty, he offers a, a thought experiment, which I think is quite beautiful and kind of uh, distills the essence of his contribution to okay. like uh, the field, you know, economics and whatever. Um, and here's the thought experiment. So the the, if you imagine, um, if you imagine like a theoretical abstract expanse of land. So, and imagine that there's, there's like a, there's an expanse of land out there that extends to infinity in every direction. Whoa. And it has no uh, geographical or topographical features and nobody lives on it. Just flat, no one lives on it and it's infinite. It's just an infinite expanse of featureless land. Okay. All right. Not boring. <laughs> okay, I continue, yeah. So n but not it's infinite. All right, all right. And then imagine, then imagine one uh, settler okay. strikes out onto that land looking for a place to, uh, to build a farm. So the simulation populates a single agent onto the infinite. Exactly. <laughs> okay. exactly. And they're making a farm. Or well, they can whatever they're anything, doing but, anything. Yeah. yeah, and the uh, but for the sake of the thought experiment, let's say they're making a farm. So, okay. the, so so somebody goes to the out onto this expanse, and the thing to notice is that when this person goes out looking for a place to build a farm, he or she is essentially making a random choice. It makes no difference where he or she goes. Yeah, every every place, every part of this land. Is equally good. It's infinite, it's, and it's, it's equally good. It's yes. equally good because it has no features. features. There's no part with the river. Yeah, or, exactly. You know, right? No so, beach view. No. Yeah. Yeah. Cetera, so it's yeah. all. It's all exactly. No the more same. fertile land. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So it's like just throwing a dart. First so if the second agent comes, then it's the same thing. Is that you can just randomly plot anywhere, and it's the exact same level of goodness. Y yeah, but hold on for okay. a second. So, <laughs> so the, the the first person goes out, out on this land and builds a farm. And so now imagine this happening. Imagine the person going out there building a farm. Um, uh, he or she has got to do everything. They've got to, uh, they've got to you know, uh, farm their own crops, build their own house, make their own shoes, smith their own tools. They've got to do everything. They've got to be a jack of all trades. Yeah. And uh, so maybe they can do it. Um, but they're not going to be like economically rich. They're going to have to basically be like cobbling together subsistence uh, living, right? Now imagine a second person coming to the, to the expanse, right? So okay. for the second person, the choice of where to go is not the same as it was for the first person because the land is no longer unoccupied and no longer featureless. The second person clearly you know, it's clearly most advantageous for the second person to put down a farm in proximity to the first person. Okay, right? yes to a certain extent, because there's also the potential to go to the exact opposite side of the land of that person and then have the most far distance from that person, because if you do want to expand your land, Potentially, just an idea. But well, yeah, it's also advantageous I, I to go next to the person because then there's another human to engage with, to trade with, to exactly. talk to, all that stuff. I, yeah. I'm, I mean, maybe you know, I'm skeptical that it's a, such a great idea to go to the opposite. opposite. Yeah. Because, yeah, I think you know, it, if if the second person settles close to the first person, suddenly they can trade, right? Yeah, the trade they, master. They, they yeah. can they can transact. The, the one that's better at farming can spend more time farming. The but one, if there's a the difference of opinion, at, then there's war. <laughs> that's well, that's, that's true, but just from an economic perspective. Sure, okay. Just from okay. a purely economic perspective, they, uh, it's economically advantageous for both of them to, okay. to live in proximity, right? Okay. And this effect compounds. So just you run that, run that yeah. iterate that simulation okay. a million times, and suddenly, instead of a couple subsistence farmers, you have like a thriving city. And there's specialists, right. there's the ability to be able to get rich exactly. instead of be a jack of all trades, all this type of stuff. Exactly. Then the dynamics for oligopolies and self-dealing <laughs> increase yeah. and 
the instead of the inclusive fitness of treating people like a, a community and right. all that stuff. Yeah. But the key thing to notice is that, is that once you've got a city, there's gonna be much higher levels of like per capita wealth being generated, right? Because yeah. they're all traded. You know, they're all enjoying. You know, taking advantage of their. Uh, 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 you know, opportunity costs and competitive advantages. They get to do what they want with their time. Yeah. Right? Unbounded savanna. Yeah. It's a cool thought experiment. I like that one. But it's not over. Okay. So here's the, here's, the, here's the next thing to notice about thought experiment. So once you've got this city, everybody's coming into this city and making the city wealthier and wealthier and wealthier. The network effect. Network effect. Yeah. Right? But the newcomers who keep coming to the city and making it wealthier and wealthier and wealthier may not be very wealthy themselves. The reason they may not be very wealthy themselves mm -hmm. is that in this thriving city, somebody other than them probably owns the land yeah. that they need to be on yeah, correct. in order to participate in that. And network. that's the rent-seeking and behavior. that's their and that's and and yeah. so you know basically like the value that they're adding to that network is getting captured right up to the margin, literally in the form of rent. Yeah, yeah, right. Literally in the form of just rent for their apartment. Or yeah, whatever, yeah. Right? So. Um, so this is the thing that Henry George noticed, and he was like, "Well, this is a problem. Yeah. This is an inefficiency. Yeah, you know? huge inefficiency. Yeah. yeah. So, so he had the idea that like um, billionaires profiting on dozens and dozens of ownerships of pieces of land. Meanwhile, people that are trying to contribute really good ideas or organizations or memes or anything to these areas when they come in fresh." are being sucked dry of all of their resources by rent-seeking behaviors of people that are extremely wealthy in the first place. Yeah. First, someone that just owns one ho one home and just is trying to rent out a room in that home. Right. Uh, yeah, at a fair rate or whatever, yeah. Right. Yeah, completely different. So that's the, that's the, um, that's the concept, right? That's the thought experiment. And so, you know, Henry George's big idea, which was like super popular in the late 19th century, early 20th century, and very influential, on a whole generation of American like policy thinkers and, and, and economists was basically the idea that there's kind of a, that there's like this distinction between what Henry George would have called natural capital, right, and artificial capital. And so H Henry George wanted to put a, a tax on natural capital, essentially taxing away its rental value, all right, and not put it, and, and, and then take away a lot of taxes, reduce all the taxes on artificial capital. Okay, right? so explain this more. So artificial capital is our ma 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 massive skyscrapers, megalithic structures, the robots that are okay, made by labor. Yeah. And the natural capital is our beautiful California coastline and mountains and that's not made by labor. Right. Okay. So so natural capital now explain the taxes again. So the the idea is that um, is that the 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 rental value mm -hmm. that that can be gotten uh, from the ownership of uh, natural capital, okay, ought to be taxed away. I mean, taxed away, meaning well, like, like, well, his idea was that you know there should be a government tax on you know land tax. Okay, so, so he he wanted to, and and I should be clear that like this is not uh, this is not radical exchange's idea. This is like I'm just kind of laying the you are laying stuff, the, right? yeah you are right is, now. yes yeah. So, yes. Th but this is uh, the the thought is that. Um, you know, there should be a tax on, on land, which Henry George called the single tax. Okay. And that that tax on land should replace all kinds of other, should replace all the other taxes. So we should, you know, get rid of income taxes, get rid of taxes oh, on this, that, and the other thing. Okay. And just like the only tax there should be. Is on land. Would be on land. And why, right? yeah, and then what would you do with natural capital versus artificial capital taxing land? What do you, I'm not oh, sure. Oh, how, sorry, how would, um, how would you tax the land of natural capital versus artificial capital? So you'd figure out the rental, you'd figure out basically the, the amount of money you could get renting land, and that would be your tax. The amount of money you could get renting the, the amount of, The amount of money that an owner could get from renting a piece of land. In the natural capital in, versus... For yeah. natural capital. Okay. Right, and then tax away exactly that amount. So that there'd be no, you know, uh, oh, rent, seeking rent seeking from ownership of natural capital. Oh, okay. 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 So this is like, okay, this is Henry George. This okay. is, Henry, you know, yeah, yeah. the problem is if you think about like, how do you actually do that? Right. How do you actually figure out the, um, the rental value of land? It's like, um, 
you can't do it. It's not, it's not like a practical idea that can be implemented, right? But it has this kind of theoretical yeah. uh, appeal yeah. that, uh, that captured the imagination of a lot of people. I like that simulation right. that we just ran. That was a really good one, yeah. yeah. I like that. Cool. And it definitely teaches us a lot about network effects. It teaches us a lot about um, dynamics between people working um, together to increase wealth, but also that can self-deal. I like that. And it's basically a simulation of a civilization, how it evolves on a planet. Yeah, right. Yeah. And, and what, it does, what, what, it, what it does is it, it, it shows you that the value of land, like the value you know, that land has, is, uh, um, is comes from a network effect. Yeah, it does. The right. value of land totally comes from a network effect. And that's yeah. not, you know, that's not, once you, once you see that, you can't unsee that. Yeah. But that's not obvious. You know, as you're going through your life in 2019, it's not always obvious that, you know, the reason this land in San Francisco is so valuable is because there's this gigantic network effect happening, happening that involves here. people all around the whole yeah. Bay Area who are engaging in transact, you know, yeah. exchange and, you know, and, and, that, and that the ownership of this particular land gives, gives you the ability to, um, you know, gives you essentially ownership over a slice of that network. Yeah. 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 Yeah, that's well said. Yeah. We got to make those things that are not so obvious more obvious for people, then we can push out the good, the good ideas. So then, is that, how is that part of the common ownership self-assessed taxation then? So the common ownership self-assessed taxation is a way of, it's kind of, it, you, you can think of it as like a little update to Henry George. It's, it's, a, it's a better way of doing what, a more flexible uh, um, uh, way of doing essentially what Henry George wanted to do. It doesn't necessarily have to apply to land. And it's not, and I should be very clear that like, we're not, we're not saying like, oh, it's just like get rid of, you know, it's not like a part of our policy agenda to get rid of uh, private property and land and replace it with this other system. Yeah, yeah. It's yeah. just what it is, is, but it's a, it's a way of thinking about how to administer common property. Yeah. All right. Um, in, in other words, if you've got a, if you've got a piece of common property, and you're thinking about imposing uh, a different kind of property regime on it. For example, like you might you might take an expansive land and, and say, uh, okay, you know, it's it's uh, we're gonna uh, uh, overlay a private property grid on that on that common land now, and you know, whoever goes and stakes their private property claim first gets the private property, right? So that's like, you know, you, you could imagine like just imposing a private property regime onto a piece of common property. Or you could imagine doing something different, something actually more efficient. And that's what the common ownership self-assessed taxation is getting at. And here's, here's the idea. So it's like, imagine you've got, um, imagine you've got a, a piece of land and there's a, a property tax on the land. The, the way that property taxes normally work would be that uh, some assessor comes and says what the land is worth and you pay uh, some percentage of that uh, uh, value that's assessed by the assessor. So the way this works is that instead, you self-declare what you think the, 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 the land is worth. Now obviously that creates an incentive to, to, to self-declare as low as possible. The catch is that whatever you self-declare at the value to be, you also have to um, be willing to sell the to any buyer willing to pay that amount. So, mm -hmm. so it's not only a self-assessment, it's also a sell offer. Yeah. Right? Um, there's another kind of more technical component to this, which involves you know, how to think about the exact level that the taxation rate should be at within this. Um, but that is, the, that is the basic idea. And if you set the, the tax at the right level, you end up with a situation where um, uh, the what, what's called the um, allocative efficiency gain will outweigh the, an investment efficiency loss, and you end up with a with a, a system in which land is in which land or any other analogous type of asset is being managed uh, more efficiently. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. The I feel like what you're explaining to us with all of these is a more just way to 
structure a society um, that helps actualize more people's fullest potential into the world. And oh, I love it. Hundred percent. Yeah. I mean, that that's the that's the idea, and the um, um, you know, so I mean, one one way that I think about uh, institutions is like if you've got an institution. You can you can sort of evaluate it along um, along two different dimensions. One is backward looking, and one is forward looking. Mm, mm-hmm. So, it, it, like, if you want to, for example, evaluate just um, or let me give you an example. Um, in criminal justice, if you want to, you know, criminal punishment is like an institution, and there are two different ways of evaluating whether it's just. There are two different sort of classes of justifications for criminal punishments. One is um, one is often called retributive justifications. The other is, is um, sort of like forward-looking justifications. So utilitarian, deterrence-based justifications, incapacitation-based justifications. So in other words, you've got a punishment. You can ask yourself two kinds of questions about it. You can ask, does this punishment make sense? in light of the past action? Is it proportional to the size of the crime, right? The other uh, question you could ask yourself is, is this punishment likely to lead to good consequences going forward? So forward-looking and backward-looking justifications, right? And um, the backward-looking justifications often track the kinds of issues that we sort of put under the heading of justice. And the forward-looking justifications track the sorts of issues we put under the heading of efficiency. Correct. Okay. But the, I think that um, you can always learn about one by looking at the other. Yeah. So in, in other in other words, if like if you if you think you've got this great forward-looking justification for a particular institution. But it seems to create this kind of like uh, grotesque situation when you when you look at it from a backward-looking perspective. You're probably missing something, even from an efficiency perspective. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. like an example of that would be if you've got a, um, you know, someone might come along and say, oh, okay, if, like if we punish uh, speeding on the road with the death penalty, then we'll save millions of lives, right? And you might, you know, like a, 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 a blinkered utilitarian might say, oh, that's a great idea. Let's do it. You know, but then if you look at it from this, from a backward looking retributive perspective, it looks terrible because it's like, obviously, you don't deserve the death penalty yeah. for going five miles an hour over the speed limit. There's obviously a mismatch there. And that, I, that mismatch from the backward looking perspective tells us that we're missing something when, yeah. we, when we conclude that it's like an efficient forward-looking yeah. thing. Yeah, so the justice and efficiency both married married in institutional um, progress is so important. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Woof, this has been super solid. I've had a really good time unpacking these subjects together, Matt. Let's ask you quick, are we in a simulation? Uh, there, there, we don't have, we, don't, we can't know. Uh, I, I mean, I'm sort of, uh, I wouldn't say I'm, Persuaded, but I'm open to the arguments that we are, um, uh, and um, uh, I don't think it matters. And then, what do you think is the most beautiful thing in the world? Um, oh God. Um, Love and peace. I just, you know, yeah, I mean, correctly interpreted. Both of those things, you know, correctly interpreted. Um, uh, you know, I, I, I think I, I want to live in a world where um, everybody thrives, basically. And I think that um, everybody has the potential to, to thrive. Yeah. Um, 
and uh, and I also want to live in a world where um, people care about one another, care about themselves, think deeply about one another, think deeply about um, their relationship with um, you know nature, other species, um, and um, you know, I guess I. Um, I've got a lot more to say about that, but it's not all yeah. uh, coming out on the tip of my tongue. Love and peace and thriving for everyone. Yeah, it's beautiful. Yeah. Yeah. We'll go with that. I love it. <laughs> Matt, thanks so much for coming on to the show. Thank you. It's, such it's a, a pleasure. pleasure. Really appreciate it. Thank you. Keep up the good work. You too. Thank you. Thank you, brother. Thank you. Thanks, everyone, for tuning in. We greatly appreciate it. We'd love to hear your thoughts in the comments below on the episode. Let us know what you're thinking. Have more conversations with your friends, your families, coworkers, people online on social media about the topics that we discussed here, about what it's like to have things like quadratic voting or quadratic finance, or how to best structure a society and better one moving forward. Also check out the links in the bio below to radicalexchange.org, as well as the Twitter for both the Rad Exchange and for Matt. And also support the artists, the entrepreneurs, the organizations, the scientists, the indigenous elders around the world that you believe in. Support them, help them grow, help them flourish, support simulation. Our links are below to our PayPal, Patreon, cryptocurrency. If you want to, you can design cool merch and get paid for it too. That link is below. Shout out to Ron Vogus for producing and directing. Thank you very much, Ronnie. And go and build the future, everyone. Manifest those dreams into the world. We love you very much. Thanks for tuning in. We'll see you soon. Peace.